When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following is an iHeartRadio podcast. The Soundtrack Show will begin in 5, 4, 3. In 1989, Danny Elfman reinvented the sound of comic book heroes on the silver screen. This is The Soundtrack Show. Welcome back to The Soundtrack Show. I'm your host, David W. Collins, and this episode is all about the music from Batman, a film from 1989 by Warner Brothers Pictures, directed by Tim Burton, with a film score by Danny Elfman. In 1989. What a fascinating year. George Bush Sr. became President of the United States in 1989. The Berlin Wall came crumbling down in Germany after protests in both East and West Germany, and the Brandenburg Gate was finally open. While Japan's stock market crashed, Nintendo released the Game Boy and saw incredible success. Pop culture was beginning to shift as change was in the air. The top musical artists in 1989 included Guns N' Roses, Paula Abdul, New Kids on the Block, Millie Vanilli, Fine Young Cannibals, and yes, Prince. More on that later. And the top movies of the year were Back to the Future 2, Ghostbusters 2, Lethal Weapon 2, a lot of sequels, Dead Poets Society, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, Field of Dreams, The Little Mermaid, The Abyss, and Weekend at Bernie's. But my friends, not since Star Wars had the world seen a pop culture phenomenon like it saw in the spring and summer of 1989. A frenzy over a movie that was so new, so fresh, so poised to deliver entertainment the likes of which we had never seen on the silver screen. It was gothic, dark, exotic, dangerous, exciting, yet had its roots in 20th century popular art going all the way back to the 1930s. It promised an updated take on our own mythos, much needed after a 1960s television series of the same name, which we don't have time to get into on this episode. But it promised an updated take on our own cultural legend and swept audiences away by getting us to look at our own pop culture very differently. That movie, no, that pop culture blitz, was Batman. People went nuts. Months before the movie was out, newspapers were covering it. MTV was showing music videos nonstop. T-shirts were everywhere. Heck, at my junior high, a couple of the skater kids had the Batman logo buzzed into the back of their heads. Batman was more than just a movie. It was, simply put, It was cool. With a budget of $35 million, Batman was, in every sense of the word, big. 
and somewhat unprecedented. Comic book movies at the time weren't that big. In 1978, Richard Donner's Superman had proven to be the exception to the rule. But would you believe it? Batman took over 10 years from there to finally get made. No studio in town wanted it at first. But finally, Warner Brothers put it in production, placing all their chips on the table. Indeed, with Batman, they were betting big. And it wasn't exactly a sure thing. There was plenty of risk involved, and the WB should be proud that they took it on. First of all, they didn't churn out a generic, play-it-safe type of film. Oh no, Batman is dripping with style, from its art direction, to its casting, to its tone, and to its music. They actually decided to gamble. They decided to introduce risk into Batman in order to give us, the audience, something that we had never seen before. How did they do it? By hiring a young film director named Tim Burton. Here came along a fellow uh, in Tim Burton who liked the original material and liked the comic material and had a sensibility because he was a graphic artist. He came out of that, that milieu. So he had a sensibility about the material and yet he'd already made films and quirky, unique films. There was a danger in that because it didn't look like what everyone thought it was. But the value of that was it the imagination and the intuition took everybody to another place. And what he baked into the process was the most important element in a film. He built risk into it. He said, I'm gonna take this to another place where there is not a lot of certainty. I'm gonna give you variety. And that scares people, it scares studios, financiers, and it did all the way up the food chain till the very end. But that was the component that helped, that very risk component helped get it made and helped make it what it is. They left this giant blockbuster in the hands of a director who was barely 30 years old, who only had two movies under his belt, Pee-wee's Big Adventure and Beetlejuice, and they gave him a ton of creative control. Early on, his resolve and his aesthetic were greatly tested when he cast comedian Michael Keaton as the Dark Knight himself. You have to recognize that you're, when you're making a movie, that you're in the selling business from the minute the movie gestates, from the minute the movie is announced, from the minute the first comments reach the press, there's an impression about the movie. And when you have a property that's a lightning rod, like Batman, when you begin to cast the picture, everybody has an opinion, because they know what that character meant to them in their youth, or has they read the comic, or when they set a television show, and they even question whether they should make it. Well, Michael Keaton was a was a firestorm of activity when he was cast. Well, Keaton was controversial at the time because everybody thought, Michael Keaton, that means the picture is becoming a comedy. At first I thought it was a joke, and I laughed and said, yeah, Mr. Mom is Batman, that's very funny. When they explained that everybody was serious about this, I, my instantaneous response was like every fanboy. I was shocked. I said, oh my God, this can't become a campy Batman again. I remember that this was so newsworthy that the front page of the Wall Street Journal, of all places, had an article about what was wrong with us for choosing Michael Keaton to be Batman. You can't buy that kind of publicity. While casting Jack Nicholson as the Joker was a complete slam dunk, Michael Keaton wasn't at the time, in the eyes of many, many fans and press. The trade papers actually covered the outcry. But Tim Burton did things his way, and he relentlessly pursued his vision. Tim saw something in Michael's eyes. Uh, they were very alive and interesting, and a lot of the time he was wearing a mask or a cowl, and he needed what, what came from his eyes. It's like with Michael, you look at you look at him, and he's just got those eyes, and he looks crazy, and he looks just like, but he also doesn't look like a superhero. It's like he looks like a guy who would need to dress up like a bat for effect. Another controversial casting decision that Tim Burton made, though not nearly as public, but nonetheless controversial at Warner Brothers during development, was when he hired composer Danny Elfman. According to Danny Elfman, Tim Burton was the only person who wanted him on that film. Batman was and still rates as the most difficult and challenging movie experience I ever had in my life. And what do you do for a living? I had only at that point done comedies. Nice outfit. And nobody wanted me on the film except for Tim. 
There was a point, I remember my second or third presentation and John Peters was in the room and I didn't know how to present music to a producer at that point. So I was playing all this kind of weird stuff that I was coming up with and then Tim said, play the march, play the march. I played that and suddenly John started conducting in the room and Tim gave me a look like, I think we're in. And it actually came back to me and I finished the score and it paid off. I've never had an experience that difficult since then. When I say that Batman was a media blitz, that it was bigger than a movie, in the same way that Star Wars became bigger than a movie a decade before, I mean that Warner Brothers had big plans for other parts of its business, including their music business. Early on, Warner Brothers had decided that it was going to pursue a tried-and-true method of using the movie to promote hit songs. And yes, I'm referring to Prince. His Batman soundtrack album plays a huge part in this story. But other than the creatives knowing that there was going to be this business decision that WB was putting into action, there was no real artistic understanding of just how music was going to work in this film while it was being produced. I mean, it wasn't going to be John Williams' bright and heroic Superman. It somehow needed to be edgy. Tim Burton pushed back on the idea of using all pop songs for his soundtrack and insisted on hiring Danny Elfman. Here's a quote from the liner notes of the La La Land Records' Danny Elfman Batman collection. Quote, When Batman was entering post-production in 1989, there was still no blueprint for what music for a comic book superhero movie should be. And despite the brash and wildly stylized music he'd brought to Burton's previous comedies, Pee-wee's Big Adventure from 1985 and Beetlejuice from 1988, it was unclear how composer and former Oingo Boingo frontman Danny Elfman would adapt his style to a big-budget, epic, and darkly serious superhero film. The stakes were enormously high. These liner notes are written by Jeff Bond. They're excellent. And he goes on to say, quote, After visiting the film set in London, Elfman conjured up his Batman theme on the flight back, memorizing it on his tape recorder in the aircraft's restroom. Back in Los Angeles... Elfman started the task of tackling such a large score, working in close collaboration with Burton. When he returned to record the score with the Symphonia of London, it was under the auspices of most of the movie's high-powered producers, wondering what Elfman was going to deliver. The first piece performed was the main title. What Elfman produced was remarkable, the dark underbelly of superheroism. As epic and thundering as John Williams' 1978 Superman score, yet full of foreboding, bristling with kinetic energy and violence, colored by shadings of both Bernard Herrmann's portentous crushing orchestral chords, including a pipe organ right out of Journey to the Center of the Earth, and Carl Orff. His five-note theme for Batman worked equally well as ominous brooding atmosphere, as a Wagnerian anthem, and as a percussive kinetic motif punctuating every surprise appearance and unexpected punch thrown by the caped crusader, end quote. What Danny Elfman came up with forever created a new type of sound for superhero films. And when he played it for the producers for the first time, they went from being skeptical of his involvement in the film to suddenly being incredibly excited. My most fun moment actually was recording it and actually hearing the music coming together in the studio. And then there was a point where John Peters started like picking up his cell phone, turning it on, holding it up to the speakers, and he'd be having people back home in LA say, check this out, check this out, check this, listen to this. Let's listen to the opening of Batman, the overture over the opening credits. Listen to how the theme unfolds and how it works as a mysterious, elongated passage, but then also works as an action-packed march.
for Batman was a succinct, perfectly brooding yet epic motif that could function beautifully throughout multiple permutations, multiple dramatic situations. It could be played fast, it could be played slow, and it only contains five notes. Let's listen here. This is in B minor here. Here are the notes. One, two, three, four, five. Just walking up in B minor with a flat six here, you slowly ascend from the root out of the shadows, if you will, then a large interval leap, and then a small descent down a half step to resolve the tension. I like the storytelling aspect of this motif. In just five notes, you have something dark, something that emerges from the darkness, yet takes flight, and descends perhaps on a rooftop or some other perch, which we actually see throughout the beginning of the movie. But besides these five notes, every once in a while, this theme, this minor chord theme, will unexpectedly, deceptively resolve into a major chord. And not one that is native to minor, giving it a bit of a surprise resolve. It goes from B minor then this chromatic line descends just a little bit further, creating the third of this new major chord, C-sharp major. And by doing so, we're overcome with a feeling of awe and an impression of Batman as a hero after all. It's not expected, and it doesn't always happen, but when it does, it takes us to a whole new place. Through whatever troubled mind created Batman, he is still a vigilante hero. And Danny Elfman gives us this right here with this major chord. But even more than all of that, there's a technical brilliance to the economy of just five notes. Very quickly and at any time, Elfman can hit us with this theme and it can disappear back into the shadows like Batman himself. In the opening of the film, after he's established the Batman theme in the overture, we quickly get the theme when Batman appears on the rooftop. When the scene ends, Elfman punctuates it quickly with the theme again. During the Axis chemical shootout, aka the birth of the Joker scene, Batman appears and disappears several times as he takes out Joker's henchmen up on the catwalks. The theme does this right along with him. Even when Batman, aka Bruce Wayne, has softer moments in the film, such as his bedroom scene with Vicki Vale, the Batman theme can be adapted into a major key, showing us a sweeter side of Bruce Wayne. except it reverts back to minor when, clearly uncomfortable, Wayne decides to get out of bed and hang upside down on an exercise machine, just like a bat. Perhaps Batman really is his true identity. And by the time you get to the museum rescue, followed by the Batmobile chase in the middle of the film, the motif is used again and again, punctuating the action, and using it to depict the daring heroism of our Dark Knight. Here's the theme. There it is again. Key change. 
and again. Key change. Again, key change. And again. Key change. Again. Right here. And here. And here. Everywhere, driving the action. And as effective and as impressive as Batman's five-note motif is, it's even more interesting when contrasted with the musical treatment that Danny Elfman gives to the Joker. And now for a brief intermission. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. We return now to the soundtrack show. I loved films and I loved film scoring. So suddenly I had a chance to kind of dabble in this and I wanted to do more, but I was in a band and touring and doing albums. I used to go see his band before I was doing movies and clubs and just always felt like his music was uh, very filmic. So after Beetlejuice, I got a call from Tim saying, I'm doing this thing, you might be interested in it. And he sent me the Dark Knight comics. That was much more up my alley than what I had known of the original Batman comics as a kid. And then there was a point where they went into production and I flew out to London and went out in the set. The very first film he did, Pee Wee's Big Adventure, um, came out of the blue, kind of. He was looking for a, a low a low profile, and this one was like a little higher profile than he wanted. And he took me along as a safety net. I really got my initial ideas from walking around at night on set of uh, Gotham. With the Batman theme, I just looked for something that had the components that could be mysterious, that can be dark, that could also get fun and can also have a driving heroism too, always keeping that dark side to it. He did come up with a good one. You know, that's hard to do, to come up with what the Batman character is, kind of dark but adventure and moving and operatic, all those things at once. I wasn't trying to come up with something that people would remember so much as something that fit the footage. You know, I always just think of what plays this footage, and I needed something heroic and simple. And in that simplicity, you have building blocks, and you can use different building blocks and expand on them. Batman's theme is a Wagnerian five-note triumph. One of the things besides the notes that makes it work is how flexible it can be rhythmically. For example, when treated as a march, these build-up notes into the interval leap, this right here, can function as triplets, winding up for a big horn blast. Reminds me of Star Wars. Only this is a much darker universe, a twisted mirror of such bright fantasies. But you know, speaking of Elfman's use of rhythm, he uses it quite brilliantly when depicting the Joker. First of all, let's take a look at the pre-Joker music, the music that accompanies Jack Napier, Jack Nicholson's character, when he meets up with the crooked cop, Eckhart, at the top of the movie.
This is the gangland jack, the pre-Joker jack. The music more closely ties us to the criminal underworld of Gotham, rather than the clown prince of Gotham. But when Jack goes full Joker, we're treated to a circus-like waltz. Elfman changes the meter, the rhythm, to three-quarter time. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. Like a circus, when the Joker first reveals himself as the Joker to Grissom, his crime boss played by actor Jack Palance, and executes him by shooting him again and again. It's a twisted, funny scene that works because of this outlandish circus music. This is no doubt inspired by the time that Elfman spent with Le Grand Magic Circus in Paris, or perhaps with the Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo. This three-quarter time, one, two, three, one, two, three, this type of waltz follows the Joker throughout the movie, and even, at times, appears as an Easter egg here and there. The way Elfman weaves three-quarter time, or waltz time, to tell the story of the Joker is really inspired. For example, towards the beginning of the film, when Jack has been sent by Grissom to destroy any incriminating documents at Axis Chemicals, Harvey Dent, played by Billy D. Williams, is putting the squeeze on crime in Gotham, Jack and his goons realize, when the office safe is empty, that they've been set up. This sets the stage for the Axis Chemicals shootout. But this shootout doesn't result in the death of Jack Napier, no, but rather it's the birth of the Joker. Because of this, in a nice bit of foreshadowing, Elfman sets this action cue up in, you guessed it, three-quarter time. Like a fast waltz. After the Joker kills Grissom, the crime bosses of Gotham call a press conference, announcing that they're taking over Grissom's businesses. Now, Remember that low-end piano that was in the scene between Jack and Eckhart earlier? Well, it's back now in this scene, as clowns acting as mimes converge on the press conference. We're seeing two worlds converge here as the piano drives the music, a la the gangsters with whom Jack used to associate, and this playful three-pattern over four starts to emerge. It's in four. One, two, three, four. Dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. Dun 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 dun. One dun three. One two three. One two three. One two three. One two three. This is where the Joker absorbs the gang activity of Gotham, and it happens musically as well within this cue. The piece ends in an all-out waltz of insanity. The Joker has taken over. Meanwhile, Bruce Wayne is watching all of this unfold. Batman's theme is hinted at, but can never fully develop. But our three-quarter time observations don't just end here, oh no. In what is perhaps my favorite Joker Easter egg in the whole movie, we get a strong plot foreshadowing when Bruce Wayne goes alone into an alleyway with two roses. Vicki Vale follows him and watches him place the roses on the ground in the alley. As he does, we hear Batman's theme, but with a very different treatment. Not only is it played with harp and glockenspiel, but it is rhythmically placed in three-quarter time. Why? Why is it in three-quarter time? And why with the harp and glockenspiel? Is it because Bruce lost his parents at a young age, so it's supposed to be a lullaby? 
Yes, I think that's the impression that we're given at the time, at this point in the movie. But my friends, this is brilliant foreshadowing as we learn later that it was the Joker who killed them. Now, I'm not here to get into comic book lore, and I know that this was a controversial plot point for Batman purists, but no matter what you think of this version of the story, you have to give it to Danny Elfman. He really is shining as a musical storyteller here. By setting Batman's motif in three-quarter time, he is simultaneously pinning the crime on the Joker while linking Batman and the Joker together as characters. You idiot! You made me, remember? You dropped me into that vat of chemicals. That wasn't easy to get over. And don't think that I didn't try. You killed my parents. What? Oh. <laughs> what are you talking about? I made you. You made me first. We've seen the birth of the Joker, and now we're starting to understand the birth of Batman. As it turns out, these two characters made each other this way. Great stuff. But wait, there's even more three-quarter music in the movie. Much more. And much of it centers around Vicky Vale, who the Joker slowly becomes obsessed with. When the Joker sees a picture of Vicky for the first time, and he says, Stop the press, who is that? We suddenly hear a new theme emerge. That theme is actually a tune by American songwriter Stephen Foster, written between 1862 and 1864, called Beautiful Dreamer. Here's a quote from the liner notes from the La La Land Records collection. Quote, Elfman's orchestra takes up Stephen Foster's Beautiful Dreamer in a glittering, ethereal treatment rife with celeste and lush strings as the Joker waxes over his newfound romantic interest. Tim Burton suggested the use of Beautiful Dreamer, perhaps inspired by the tune's use as a Beauty and the Beast love theme in the 1949 giant ape thriller Mighty Joe Young. And Beautiful Dreamer is, of course, a waltz in three-quarter time. Another three-quarter-ish piece of music appears in the Flugelheim Museum, in the meter of 6-8, which is a version of 3. And that is this piece of music. This is the theme from a movie called A Summer Place from 1959, written by, well, well, written by none other than Max Steiner. This has become quite a trend on the soundtrack show. Anyway, in keeping with the Joker's love of a good waltz, this theme keeps that waltz going. As the Joker's obsession with Miss Vale grows, he finds her at her loft apartment later in the film. And after presumably shooting Bruce Wayne dead, he recites a poem. As he does, we hear this little waltz play, showing us that the Joker is truly psychotic. Here's another quote from the La La Land Records liner notes, quote, after seemingly killing Bruce Wayne in Vicky's apartment, the Joker departs with a poem. Elfman's music box accompanies the rhyme, while his straining, ascending trombone chords accompany the villain's flatulent theatrical exit. With the Joker gone, the dazed Vicky unwraps a last present, and Elfman produces a drawl coda worthy of Carl Stalling. End quote. And finally, in the end, up in the bell tower of the cathedral, a scene which is right out of both the Phantom of the Opera and the silent film Metropolis, the Joker's psychotic waltz continues as he dances around with Vicky Vale. As violent as this scene gets, this bit of music provides plenty of twisted, dark comedy. Mm -hmm. 
Danny Elfman, as we can tell, has done some brilliant work here. The pressure of scoring a giant film like this must have been so intense. I mean, think about this. How wonderful that he was so successful in doing this. It's a tribute to his talent, for sure, but also his calm under pressure. In less than four years, four years, he went from scoring his first movie to scoring the world's biggest blockbuster of 1989. It was like a level of intensity that I never could have comprehended in my life. And yet, it's been rewarding. But Stephen Foster and Max Steiner weren't the only non-Elfman pieces of music in the film. For a long time, and even still to this day, Batman's musical spotlight bore the symbol of someone else entirely. The soundtrack show will continue in a moment. We return now to the soundtrack show. Oh, I got a live one here. <laughs> I love Prince. I love Prince. And what unfolded with Prince in 1989's Batman is a fascinating series of events and is a sign of how multimedia marketing and cross-promotion was changing at the end of the 20th century. So I take nothing away from Prince's achievements with this album. I had it on cassette and bought it again later on CD. I listened to it non-stop the summer of 89. Here's a quote from the La La Land Records liner notes, quote, The stakes were enormously high, and the project was complicated by an ambitious plan to have several high-profile rock artists contribute to the film's music. With Michael Jackson writing a Batman theme, George Michael producing a theme for Vicki Vale, and Prince writing music for the Joker. It goes on to say this, quote, Any plans to dominate the movie with songs were quickly dispensed with when the power of Elfman's score became evident. Still, promotion for the Batman movie hyped the contribution of Prince, and an album of Prince's nine songs became the de facto soundtrack album for the movie, until Elfman's score was released by Warner Brothers Records six weeks later and at least one major newspaper reviewer credited the movie's score to Prince. Once the film became the year's biggest hit, however, Elfman's contribution became more widely known and he quickly found himself in the top rank of American film composers, scoring productions of every sort and wielding special influence over the music of many later comic book superhero films." End quote. That's right, Prince's album was the de facto soundtrack album. This album, released before the film, had a video on MTV non-stop. That's right, that video was Bat Dance. that nobody knew what a late 80s, dark, gritty Batman was supposed to sound like. At the height of the MTV era, with the music industry still being incredibly lucrative in terms of album sales, this all makes sense. Perhaps a song score would be the way to go with Batman. And you can hear the idea of a song score that remains in the film, quite strongly in fact, with whole sequences being built around this concept. The greatest example of this, of course, is the scene at the Flugelheim Museum when the Joker and his goons deface priceless art, all set to Party Man by Prince. Gentlemen, let's broaden our minds. Lawrence?
in the scene and Joker's henchman Lawrence is asked to play it. This is clearly diegetic music, and the performances seem almost choreographed to Party Man's tempo. Later in the film, when the Joker is about to poison the people of Gotham with his Smilex gas, Prince's song Trust is played, and again, Jack Nicholson seems to be moving properly to the beat. coordinated effort with Prince's material, and is an inseparable part of Batman's musical and in-world story. In fact, other than hairstyles, it's the most standout 80s feature of Batman, whose costuming and set design is otherwise intentionally anachronistic. There are other songs of Prince's that appear in the film. At the top of the movie, you can hear a bit of the album's opening track, The Future, played in downtown Gotham. At the party at Wayne Manor, you can hear diegetic music of both the songs Vicky Waiting and Electric Chair in the background. Not for the night time. There is no bat. If it were, we would find him. We would arrest him. Would you confirm him? Be straight. Thank you, Lady Commissioner. How you making out? No good at all. Oh, Mr. Dent, I love that tie. Uh, you know, Gordo and I were just discussing the pros and cons of wing vigilantes. What's your stand, <laughs> Mr. Knox? We have enough problems in this city without worrying about ghosts and goblins. I don't have I mean, That's Thank not. You. That's not a denial. But, besides the cultural significance of Bat Dance, which featured classic lines from the movie, which to this day still stick out to me every time I hear them in the film, part of my brain just reflexively goes, hey, that's from Bat Dance. Anyway, besides Bat Dance, the most musically significant track in terms of the film's score comes late in Prince's album, a ballad called Scandalous. The part that is relevant to us is this motif here. Danny Elfman, in true Max Steiner style, uses this motif for a love theme between Vicky and Bruce. By the way, for more on Max Steiner, check out my episodes on his score for Casablanca, where he brilliantly used a pop tunes melody as the main dramatic device. The first time we hear Elfman use this scandalous line is when Vicky and Bruce have their first date. 
right here, hinting at it. We hear it again when Vicky is led back into the Batcave by Alfred. She knows now that Bruce is the Batman, and the scandalous motif reappears. Right here. And now for the most brilliant rendition of Scandalous that Elfman uses in Batman. At the end, when Vicky encounters Alfred at the limousine after the press conference, we hear that Scandalous motif actually morph into the Batman theme. Here. No conspiracy theorist, but this is almost too brilliant. I, I have to point it out. There's some remarkable similarities to the scandalous motif and the Batman theme. Mm. Both have five notes. Both feature a three-note walk-up with a half-step in them. Both have an interval leap between the third and fourth notes. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. And both end with a half-step resolve. Down a half-step. Down a half-step. Huh. Did... Did Elfman pen the Batman theme based on this scandalous riff? Or vice versa? Well... No, not that we know of. Look, we know that Elfman wrote the Batman theme in his head on the plane ride back from London after visiting the set, and Prince was such a prolific songwriter and so private that I doubt it. But the similarities are really interesting to point out and pretty striking. But perhaps it's because of these similarities. Perhaps it is these same similarities that caused Elfman to incorporate it in the first place. He recognized a musical synergy with this particular piece of Prince's music out of all that he could have chosen from. And to his credit, it really provides some much-needed cohesion between these two separate musical efforts. And there are so many other great musical moments in the film. His use of choir as Batman and Vicki Vale drive to the Batcave. Sounds like a Latin requiem to me. His pounding music during the Batwing sequence. And finally, right before the credits roll, Danny Elfman quotes Richard Strauss's Also Sprach Zarathustra, but with a twist. Here's the Strauss piece for reference. the bit that we're concerned with right here.
And now, here's Elfman's ending to 1989's Batman. Notice as we build and build, Elfman doesn't let us resolve happily for long. He ends with the Batman theme. But it's just the five notes. It's without the deceptive cadence, that major resolve. So we're left with a bittersweet ending. One that doesn't promise a happily ever after, but perhaps promises more adventures with the Dark Knight that are yet to come. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you so much for your emails and your social media messages. I read every single one. Please send questions or comments to me via soundtrackshowpodcast at gmail.com. And follow us on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Soundtrack Show HSW or on Twitter at Soundtrack HSW. I'm also on Twitter at David W. Collins. Thank you. The Soundtrack Show is an iHeartRadio podcast. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.